On Monday, we celebrate the birthdays of two of the most famous U.S. presidents. George Washington turns 282 this month, and Honest Abe turns 205. You might not know it, but both presidents have historical roots right here in New York City. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're celebrating President's Day by exploring moments of presidential history that took place right in our own backyard. Karen Quinones is the owner of Patriot Tours in Lower Manhattan. She's an expert on revolutionary history and our nation's first president. She joins me now in the studio. Karen, thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. The first inauguration of a U.S. president happened right here in New York City. Where was George Washington sworn in? George Washington was sworn in at the intersection of Wall and Broad Streets in Lower Manhattan, right near most people would probably know the big landmark as Trinity Church or the New York Stock Exchange, and a building today we refer to as Federal Hall National Memorial. And that building is marked, we do know, right? There's a statue there. There's a huge statue of George Washington there, and last year they restored the statue. So instead of it being this big, ugly black monument, it's a nice brown, shiny monument to Washington. So it's very easy to find. How much do you know about that Inauguration Day? What was it like? It was interesting because, you know, it was April 30th, 1789. So it was only six years after New York was free from British occupation during the war. And the city was still kind of a mess. You know, a lot of it was burned or destroyed during the war. And they're really just getting around to rebuilding the city at that time. So really, the big, beautiful thing would have been that federal hall, um, formerly the city hall. It had been restored by the architect Pierre L'Enfant, who later went on to do Washington, D.C., into this big, beautiful, what we would call today, Federalist-style building um, ready for the inauguration. What's different about the way George Washington was selected to be our president compared to how we choose presidents today? Well, Washington was pretty much selected by the House of Representatives at the time. And at the time, I have it here somewhere, I think there were only 65 guys present at the time they voted. It was a really small number. And uh, he was, of course, unanimously elected as president and Adams unanimously selected as vice president. And then they sent out two messengers to their respective homes to let them know they'd been selected. And um, when Washington got the news, he really reacted with kind of a mixed bag of feelings. You know, he was honored um, having been selected, but at the same time, he was happy to be home. Um, He'd given a lot of his life to public service. He was happy to be home at Mount Vernon. And he even writes, you know, in his memoirs that, you know, he he's happy, but he goes with a lot of trepidation, you know, back to New York, a city he didn't specifically, you know, care for a whole lot. He takes on this role, um, not really even knowing what the role is going to be, right? It's a brand new nation. Nobody knows what the president's going to do. Nobody really knows what the Congress is going to do or the courts. Everything is kind of just coming together, and he knows he'll be the first to do this, and all eyes are going to be on him for the history of the nation. So it's a very big uh, role that he takes on at that time. When he's, it's later in his life. I think he's 57. That being said, how did he view the presidency? Well, he talks about it in his uh, first inaugural address, and he talks about how really the role of the president is to represent the people. He doesn't want to take the salary. The salary is $25,000. I looked it up today. That's something like 640000 
$8,000 in salary, but it's a huge part of the entire um, nation's wealth at that time. So I think it would be worth, you know, a few billion today. Um, he doesn't want to take the pay, but he says he will make expenditures as necessary on the part of the people. And, you know, one of the things he has to do is this kind of diplomatic stuff. And you can find these little notes where he's sending out guys to buy different types of centerpieces, China and things, because they really have to be on a par of statesmanship with these new, you know, they're a new nation. They have to be on a par with Europe now. They're going to have these ambassadors from everywhere. And he's not really sure what should be on the table. He sees something at Robert Morris's home, a centerpiece, and he sends out his, you know, guy to get one like the one Robert Morris has, you know, because he thinks it's going to be nice on the table he has. So he really has to do everything. Like, what are things going to look like? What's he going to be as leader? When I was researching his role, I also found that he's really responsible for the vice president doing virtually nothing, and that he had very little to do with John Adams during that whole time. So that's really the beginning of that as well, that the vice president really is relegated to this even less than secondary role where he does very little. He also, probably the most famous thing he did, right, is that everyone was calling him Your Excellency. And he decided that was too monarchical. And he decided, no, I, Mr. President will do. So he's really trying to downplay the role of the president as being only one of the three branches of the government, all of them responsible to the people. So he really set some precedents, didn't he? He did. And he really felt strongly that it was his job to preserve their freedom, that the Constitution was an important document and that it needed to be preserved and they needed to follow the role as it was laid out there. Or at least that's what he says in his inaugural address. What was it like for New York to have the president of the United States be here? Well, for New York, it was great. You know, New York always thought it was the center of the universe anyway. So, you know, the island at the center of the world was New York. So they were really happy. You know, everybody had their buildings, you know, um, all decked out for the presidency. Thousands of people were there. It's a very tiny intersection. I know you've been there. And people were packed into the intersection, flowed down Broad Street, everyone there to get a glimpse of the president. I think one um, firsthand account I read said that it was so crowded that they needed a bunch of big burly guys to, you know, make a space for Mr. Washington to walk through. And then he went up onto the balcony of the building where the Honorable um, Robert Livingston delivered the oath of office. There was no Supreme Court or Chief Justice yet to deliver that. So Robert Morris did that. And, of course, later he would name John Jay from New York to be the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So after Washington, how did things change for New York when it came to the presidency? Well, the first big thing that happens is that the Capitol moves from New York, right? It moves to what today we call Washington, D.C., temporarily to Philadelphia. So the whole nexus of everything is no longer in New York. Some people thought that was a great thing to move the politicians away from the money. Where did I read? I read somewhere that some of the guys in Congress were just horrified that they were going to leave the great city of New York for some, you know, backwater like Virginia. Um, What would happen to the parties and the balls and all of the great things they were doing? So some people thought it was a great idea to separate the two capitals. So New York at that time really does become less important as far as the presidency goes, although New York always will in one way or another affect the presidency because they are going to be the wealthiest port pretty much right from the start of the nation. So New York's pockets became important for the presidency. Of course, they will. And Washington warns a little bit about that in his presidential farewell address. He warns about factionalism. He warns about political parties. He warns about underhanded men that will try to change the way things are, making you believe it's in your interest. And he warns quite a lot about that. His farewell address is huge. And he talks a lot about these things, not making long-term commitments to other countries, um, that all sorts of designing men will come 
come forward and try to subvert your freedoms in the cause of what they'll call liberty or safety. And he really warns us about that. And a lot of people today, right, might say that we've really stepped into that trap in the last century of allowing men to do that to us. Karen, thank you for coming in. You're welcome. Karen Quinones is a historian and owner of Patriot Tours. You can learn more about her company and the revolutionary history of New York City at PatriotToursNYC.com. Before Washington was president, he was a military general. After winning the war, he gave a famous farewell to his officers at Francis Tavern, now a restaurant and museum on Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan. Jessica Baldwin Phillips is the museum's executive director. I recently caught up with her at this historical establishment. Francis Tavern, 54 Pearl Street. What was this neighborhood like when this building was first erected? When this building was first erected, it was right on the water. And you can imagine all the ships, a sea of masts that you would look out from the windows, a bunch of merchantmen coming in and out, people from across the globe transgressing over the properties here. So it was very, I wouldn't say industrial, but it would definitely be mercantile. What year was that? This building was erected around 1719. And what was the purpose of this building? It was believed to originally been built as an elegant residence for a family. When did it become Francis Tavern? Samuel Francis purchased the building in 1762, and he opened it up as a tavern, and before that it had never been a type of food purveyor or anything. So that's when it became Francis Tavern. But he opened it up as the Queen's Head Tavern, because we were still a colony, and you know to honor his, the royalty. Who was Samuel Francis? That is a good question. Uh, we're not really sure who Samuel Francis was before he came to New York City. And he actually owned a tavern a few blocks north of Francis Tavern before he bought 54 Pearl Street. But before that, we don't know anything about him. This building is very famous because of one man in particular, and that is George Washington, right? Yes, that's correct. This building is, was saved and kept through the generations and centuries because George Washington did walk in these halls. But it has so many other great stories to tell about the culture and the context of the times. What role did George Washington play in this building? Well, George Washington used to come here and eat, actually. And so uh, it was one of the most popular taverns of the time because Sam Francis had two kitchens, which is very uncommon. He had a savory kitchen and a sweet kitchen. So um, at the end of the war, when the British finally evacuated New York City because they occupied the city during the majority of the war, George Washington hosted almost like a cocktail hour here. It was a, a famous farewell where he invited his officers to come to a private room on the second floor, which you can still visit today, the long room, and to bid them farewell. The brother-in-arms, they had served. They had the David and Goliath story. They were victorious, and he raised a glass to them, and it was a tearful event. Take us back to that night. How much do you know about it? Uh, our sources of that evening come from the memoir of Benjamin Talmadge, who was a spy and an officer during the Revolutionary War. And he wrote his memoir about five years before he passed. And the memoir is on exhibit in the museum today. And in it, he details that event. And George Washington raised his glass and said, I cannot come to each of you, but if you can come to me and shake my hand. And he went on. And there were tears. And you can just imagine this stoic leader, this father of our country, everybody came to revere and looked up to, was now stepping down and going back to his farm in Mount Vernon. So the room today is set up like it would have been when that farewell address happened? Correct. So as best 
as we can. We, we set it up to depict what a tavern would have looked like in the colonial times, and this is based on inventories of other taverns, as there was not one still remaining from Francis Tavern's time. So yes, it, you know, chairs of the time and oyster shells that were dug up from this area and candles and cards and... Mm -hmm. Have any other presidents, sitting or otherwise, frequented Francis Tavern? We know that John Adams was here. There's a reference in a letter he wrote that uh, he, he didn't really enjoy New York City, he didn't like it, but he did enjoy the food at Francis Tavern. And there's a good chance that Thomas Jefferson was here as well, but um, there's no primary source documenting that. You referenced that this building tells a much larger story, a story that goes well beyond that farewell addressed by George Washington. Tell us a little bit more about that story and what this building tells. Sure, people remember it for George Washington, but that larger story is that, you know, this was a tavern. It was a place of community. So you would come here to read the broadsides. You would come here to learn about what was happening across the water from all over the world. And that level of communication is maybe like our Facebook today or the, the nightly news. And so you'd have many different men, because only men were allowed in taverns, coming to this place to communicate and to converse and to share. And that would often lead to possibly maybe some, some brawls, some bar brawls, um, but it would also lead to the development of new organizations like the Sons of Liberty, and that was a very famous kind of young group of men who decided to you know, throw some tea over some boats in the New York Tea Party. So this is, I mean, th they came here and had drinks and decided their actions at Francis Tavern. Do the ghosts of those individuals still walk the halls of Francis Tavern, whether they're actual apparitions or not? I think in my mind, I like to picture that they're here with me and encouraging me, helping share and educate the story that is Francis Tavern. And we've had um, some people say they've heard some noises and possibly some voices, but I've never heard anything. George Washington has never appeared in the long room except for that time. <laughs> to my knowledge, yes. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Jessica Baldwin Phillips. She's the executive director of Francis Tavern Museum on Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan. More information at francistavernmuseum.org. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. Lincoln's is another presidential birthday we're celebrating this month. Harold Holzer is a Lincoln scholar and joins me now on the phone to talk about the president's relationship with New York City and how it helped launch his political career. Harold, welcome. My pleasure. How well known was Lincoln in New York City when he arrived here on February 27, 1860, to deliver a speech on the issue of the Constitution and slavery at Cooper Union? I would say that diehard Republicans, uh, and of course in those days people were really organized around their party affiliations, did know him. They had followed the Lincoln-Douglas debates, many of which had been reprinted in the New York Tribune, the Republican paper. But as far as ever casting uh, eyes on him or hearing his voice, I don't think anybody had. How significant was that speech to Lincoln's political career? I would say it was, I don't think there's another instance in history where one speech has had such a make or break potential and indeed impact on a presidential aspirant. 
Abraham Lincoln needed to break the logjam of Northeastern Republican delegates committed to William Seward as the nominee of the Republican Party, the likely nominee. And when he got to New York, he realized that the Seward delegation was pretty much locked up in New York. But he did know that his speech would also be reprinted in newspapers around the region. Ultimately, Lincoln was able to show that the Founding Fathers had intended Congress to regulate slavery, right? Well, if you accept his premise. I mean, you know, I love this speech, of course. I've written about it. But you have to give him a lot of credit for saying our our Founding Fathers are the ones who signed the Constitution. Because if he started by saying our Founding Fathers are the ones who signed the Declaration, you get a completely different result about slavery. So it was ingenious. And and so we can assume he studied the, the, the founders who signed the Declaration first before eliminating that as his base uh, as his base group. What was the most significant passage in that speech? Well, clearly in terms of history and, you know, what we call sound bites, it's the closing lines. Um, because he had spent an hour and a half telling people Basically, we have the right to regulate the spread of slavery. We're not going to touch slavery where it exists. Um, Southerners listen to me. We're no threat to me. Then Republicans listen to me. We will win this battle in the end. And that's when he got to the point. But then he gets to the end where he says, let us never um, unsay what Washington said. Let us never undo what Washington did. And let us have faith that right makes might. Uh, That's the part that people remember that eventually strength will come out of the moral correctness of the argument that all men everywhere should be free. I understand that Cooper Union wasn't the first venue considered for Lincoln's address, that it almost happened in Brooklyn. Is that right? It it absolutely almost happened in Brooklyn. In fact, Lincoln was invited to speak at the Plymouth Church, which still stands in Brooklyn Heights, um, as part of a series of Western Republicans sort of auditioning for New York Republicans who didn't think Seward could win And so a group of Republicans in New York said, we don't want Seward. He can win New York, but he can't win Indiana, Illinois, or Ohio. And if he can't win them, you're going to just go down like like our candidate did in 1856. So they began inviting prominent Republicans to speak, all of them at Plymouth Church, which was bigger at the time than Cooper Union. But Lincoln wanted to delay. Uh, We don't know exactly why. But whatever the reason, by the time he got to New York, the Plymouth Church series had ended and the young Republican group that had invited him had to find a new venue, and they rented the Great Hall at Cooper Union. You mentioned that Lincoln knew that his speech would be reprinted in the newspapers, but how did the press overall treat Lincoln after that speech? Well, keep in mind, and this is the subject of my next book called Lincoln and the Power of the Press, that the press was rigidly partisan in those days. Um, So a newspaper was openly Republican, openly Democratic. Lincoln's audience for these remarks were the Democrat, were the Republican newspapers. What he wanted to do is, is create a stir in the Eastern Republican papers where he had really gotten no traction before, and they were amazingly enthusiastic. The New York Tribune said no uh, Western orator has ever made such a de- debut in New York. The New York Times was similarly enthusiastic. The Westerns, the Western papers, as expected, were very enthusiastic. And then newspapers like the Tribune reprinted the speech in pamphlet form to give it even wider currency. It was an amazing reception for the speech and um, kept the dialogue going for, for days and weeks after the uh, oration. 
While Lincoln was in New York City for that Cooper Union address, he had his portrait taken at the studio of famed photographer Matthew Brady. He was not yet wearing his beard. How significant is that photo to the Lincoln story? Well, it's really important. It's not just that it was, you know, the way he looked the very day he gave the address. But when Lincoln got the nomination uh, three months later, suddenly image makers in New York realized that they had a great commercial opportunity, which is to create campaign posters and mass-produced portraits of the candidate that had just been chosen unexpectedly over in Chicago. And they turned to their local buddy, Matthew Brady, and and either purchased, rented, or stole that photograph. And it became the face in hundreds of campaign posters, prints, uh, tintype badges, cartoons. So Lincoln had really set the stage for this, for his campaign, since he never campaigned himself, that Brady Photograph did the campaigning for him. Wasn't it an 11-year-old girl from upstate New York who encouraged Lincoln to actually wear a beard? Absolutely. Lincoln himself acknowledged that her letter was more influential than any others. He got a lot of letters about how bad he looked, and some said he should wear higher collars, and others said he should grow whiskers. But the letter came from a little girl named Grace Bedell. She lived in a southern tier town called Westfield, New York. And when Lincoln's inaugural train came through a few months later on the way to Washington, he had those the fullest beard he ever had in his life at that point. And when he got to the Westfield train platform, he asked if she was in the audience, and then he picked her up and kissed her and thanked her. And so she was publicly identified right there at the train station in her own hometown. How many times did Lincoln visit New York during his lifetime? A couple of visits on the way back from Congress, once all the way to Niagara Falls, interestingly. There was a visit in the 1850s um, with Mary, uh, his wife, Cooper Union, uh, and then the inaugural journey in 1861, which took him all the way from Buffalo to Albany and then south through New York City. And then uh, only one more trip, um, a secret trip. In 1862, Lincoln um, came through New York City secretly and then took a train on to West Point to visit the retired Union Commander-in-Chief Winfield Scott and get his view on how things had worked out since his resignation, since his retirement. And uh, then never again. After his assassination, Lincoln's casket traveled to New York City. What was that scene like? It did. It actually replicated in in an eerie way the inaugural route, coming through New York City for a funeral in Manhattan, then actually crossing the river uh, to New Jersey, but ultimately going to Albany for a funeral and Buffalo for a funeral. But the scene in New York City was unprecedented. It was perhaps a million people uh, marching. Um, He lay in state at City Hall, the same City Hall we have now, at the top of that staircase that still exists, uh, and hundreds of thousands of people passed by the open casket to view his remains. Democrats and Republicans seemed to unite in this mourning uh, that had come so quickly after the celebratory week of the uh, that followed Lee's surrender. So it was quite an emotional upheaval and a, and a huge turnout, which um, remained the biggest public uh, outpouring on the streets of New York until Grant's funeral about 15 years later. Harold, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Harold Holzer is a writer, lecturer, and authority on all things Abraham Lincoln.
New York City honors Washington, Lincoln, and other presidents with monuments and other landmarks in its many parks. Jonathan Kuhn is the Director of Arts and Antiquities for the Parks Department and joins me now on the phone. Jonathan, thanks for taking the time. Uh, Thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity. How strong is the connection between New York City parks and United States commanders-in-chief? There's a a long and deep connection, given that the parks are where uh, public life is played out. And uh, we discovered that uh, the majority of the presidents, at one time or another, uh, paid a visit to uh, a park in New York, signed something, held a conference, staged a battle, so on and so forth, planted a tree. Obviously, uh, many parks are simply named as honorary namings for uh, specific presidents, and notably Washington, of course, and Lincoln to a lesser degree, and it trails off from there. But there's a long connection of uh, the nation's business having taken place, at least uh, for a period of time or a moment, uh, in a public park in New York. What would you say are among the most remarkable events that occurred in a city park that involved a sitting president? Remarkable? Well, uh, our, our nation's history begins well before there's a parks department and a park system, by the way, I should add. But uh, at the very outset, uh, Washington finds himself uh, stationed in two locations that became essentially parkland later on, notably the Morris Jumel Mansion in Upper Manhattan, where he commanded forces. I believe he was situated there for a period of nearly three weeks. Uh, you know, the old joke, Washington slept there. Well, he really did, and he also used it as his office during the Battle of Harlem Heights. Likewise, the Battle of Brooklyn, ultimately unsuccessful, but a significant stand in, in or sometimes referred to as the Battle of Long Island. He was uh, stationed in a building uh, adjacent to us today, the uh, promenade along Brooklyn Heights called Four Chimneys, and, and there's a marker nearby within the promenade honoring that sort of significant event. Fast-forwarding a little bit, actually retreating a little bit, so to speak, uh, John Adams, the second president, before he was president, was part of a, a uh, group of three men, Benjamin Franklin and Edward Rutledge, who met with the um, British at what's today known as Conference House, the very southern point of New York State City uh, on Staten Island, uh, where there's a historic house to this day, known once known as the Billop House. They tried to avert the war by uh, negotiating a peace. Uh, it proved ultimately unsuccessful, and of course the war ensued, and the colonists uh, established their independence. Upon establishing their independence, there's a famous incident in which, um, though it doesn't involve a president per se, uh, their first reading of the Declaration of Independence in New York State took place July 9th, 1776, and the crowd was so incited that they marched down the street to Bowling Green and toppled the statue of King George in Bowling Green Park. That would have been our oldest sculpture had that not occurred. In modern times, there are a number of instances. You have uh, Lyndon Johnson opening the World's Fair of 1964. You have John F. Kennedy, the year of his assassination, dedicating the East Coast Memorial and Battery Park. You have Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who of course infused the park system through Commissioner Robert Moses with federal fundings during the WPA, dedicating a number of features, uh, notably uh, Triborough Stadium and Bridge on Randall's Island, the athletic facility there that later that year in 1936 was used for the American Olympic time trials. You have Eisenhower planting a tree in Battery Park. You have Jimmy Carter signing the Federal Loan Guarantee Act in the 70s to bail out the financially insolvent New York City on the steps of City Hall, which, of course, stands within City Hall Park, one of our oldest parks, once known as the Commons, so on and so forth. George Bush throwing out the 
first pitch at Game 3 in the 2001 World Series in Yankee Stadium, another parks facility. So from the beginning to now, there have been associations of policy and of uh, simply a, a, a backdrop uh, where the parks has served as a backdrop for uh, important events in our the life of the city and nation. Maybe you can clear this up for me, because there's a statue, I believe it's in Madison Square Park, mm-hmm. that has the body of Abraham Lincoln, but not the head. That's an oft-told uh, story. That's the sculpture, actually, of William Seward, Secretary of State under Lincoln, who actually uh, opposed Lincoln uh, in early balloting for the presidency after he lost the, uh, the nomination he was placed within the cabinet. Uh, uh, is by a man named Randolph Rogers, and he did indeed do a sculpture of Lincoln seated in Philadelphia that bears resemblances but is different. Close comparison of the two sculptures uh, would show you that they're not a, a ripoff, the precise replica. I suppose the issue is, too, that Lincoln was a tall man and Seward was rather short, if I'm not mistaken, and so, indeed, the proportions seem slightly out of uh, sync. Uh, Maybe he was having a bad day as a sculptor, but, indeed, it's not a direct copy, and he didn't just plagiarize himself, though, as all artists do, they have a certain style and a certain motifs that they use repetitively, so somehow along the line, these has gotten conflated into the story that he just plunked the head of Seward on the body of Lincoln, but not true. Uh, We have another sculpture of a president in the same park, by the way. Which sculpture is that? Uh, That's to Chester Allen Arthur, the northeast corner of the park. Seward, the Secretary of State under Lincoln, is at the southwest corner of Madison Square Park. And uh, and you've got a third political honcho, uh, Roscoe Conkling, uh, a United States senator from New York, uh, who controlled the Port of New York at one time on the... uh, southeast corner, and there's sort of connections between the three of them all having to do with New York State Republican Party politics of of that period in history. Well, Jonathan, I guess if you're looking for something to do on President's Day, spending the day in a New York City park might be a pretty nice thing to do. Uh, We encourage people to do so on every day, but especially President's Day. Jonathan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Jonathan Kuhn is the Director of Arts and Antiquities for the New York City Parks Department. And that's all the time we have this morning. Past episodes of the show can be found in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producers Veronica Volk and Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.